Welcome to the DCCC Youth Podcast. This podcast is from Greg's sermon series on Colossians, Jesus Above All. And in the sermon, we talk about what it means to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we can come together, we can worship you, we can learn about you, and open our hearts during this time to love you more, to understand how to serve you more, and to give us an understanding of our heart, what it means to fill fill up what is lacking in your affliction. Lord, give us understanding and give us the power and um, the work in us to go and do that. And we thank you so much again for this day that we can worship freely. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that don't have that freedom, that you would comfort them, that you would work in them. And we thank you so much for your sacrifice on the cross that we proclaim to everyone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As Thompson said, we're continuing our series in Colossians. called Jesus Above All. This sermon is called Filling Up What is Lacking. This is actually, as you know, as we've been going through this um, the last week, we talked about this as well. It was kind of a difficult passage. There were some, some things in there that were a little difficult, and there's one that is also a little difficult. So I actually decided to make it the subject of the sermon because I think it is the center, even though it is difficult to understand at first and uh, maybe a little easy to misunderstand. Uh, I wanted to address it head on because I think it is so important for us today. Um, if you remember, uh, first week in Colossians, we talked about Jesus above all. It's the theme of Colossians. That's why I chose this. But something you'll notice, especially today and also in when we've been going through other things, is this book, uh, because it's in the Bible, really ties in very closely to our last sermon series, Light and Momentary, The Study of Suffering. Um, you'll, you'll be very surprised at some of the things I think that you see in here that parallel that. And hopefully when we're studying through this, um, you start to make those connections. Uh, even, I didn't choose the book of Philippians. It's so full of talking about suffering and joy. But when you have eyes to see, when they're open to it, you can really see how it comes out in so many different ways and, and all kinds of different books. And what we talked about, the reason I wanted to do that series last time, was so that we could open our eyes to that. We could understand what does it mean to live in this world? What does it mean to suffer? And how should we handle that? And what is joy? And all those things are going to come up again today. So the first thing we talked about, um, Paul was writing to the Colossians, and he says, I've heard about your faith. You're known for your love for all the saints. And why? He says, because you have a deep knowledge of the gospel. And when you have a deep knowledge of the gospel, that is the fruit that comes. The fruit of the gospel is reaching to all of the earth, he says. And so when we know the deep truths of the gospel, and we, we delve into that theology and it affects our life, we will have fruit. We will have that love. We will be known for love and faith. Last week we talked about, um, there are lots of ways to say it. Basically, again, Jesus above all, the preeminent Christ um, was a more theological way to say it. And the last thing that we talked about, we said basically that um, Jesus is head of all creation and Jesus is head of redemption. Those two things. And the last point we really talked about was that Jesus is the reconciler of all things. You know, reconcile. If I'm having a fight with my wife, not that that ever happens, right? Um, To be reconciled, you know, she could be really mad at me, I could be really mad at her, but eventually one of us is going to say, I'm sorry, Can can we make up? And that's reconciling, when you are enemies and you become friends. And that is the word that is used so often of God and us. 
We are enemies of God. We are by nature objects of wrath. But now we are sons and daughters of God. And it says that he's reconciled all things. Remember, difficult passage we said. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved. People have used that passage out of context for a a long time to say, well, uh, obviously, Jesus' death saves everyone. What it was really talking about is right now, and I think we're very aware of this, um, the universe is at war. There are powers. There are people. There are, are lots of things that are negative that do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And basically what it was saying is that in the end, Jesus' death accomplishes, above all in the end, that every knee will bow, as Philippians says, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And it also enables us now to do that, not just at the end of all things, to be his sons and daughters. And in the end, everyone will do that. Um, maybe not necessarily for salvation. So, remember, the last thing we're talking about, he is the reconciler of all things. So, in some ways, this is kind of difficult. I wish I had taken this passage with it. Um, Sometimes the divisions in Colossians can be a little difficult because he says he reconciles all things. And then actually in these first couple verses, he continues with that thought a little bit and he talks specifically about the Colossians. So, it's kind of a flow of thought thing. I wish I didn't break off, but... He says, he reconciles all things, and he also reconciled you. So the first one is talking big picture. Now he's saying, Colossians, he reconciled you. So take a look with me at verse uh, 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Um, so as we talk about this, I'm basically dividing this up into three sections. We talk about this. This first section is conversion, before and after. We're talking about becoming a Christian. He's addressing the Colossians. And he says, this is what you were before, this is what you were after you were reconciled to, to Jesus. And then we're going to spend a lot of time, really I think the center and the point of this group of verses is verse 24. And we'll spend a lot of time close up on that difficult verse. And uh, hopefully we leave with a much greater understanding about what it's saying. And then the last, um, the last one is Paul's goal. There's kind of some overlap. Um, there's a, a couple different ways we could outline that. But if you're note takers, this is where we'll be going, hopefully. And you'll see two and three kind of mesh and interweave. And they might not be super um, distinct from each other. But I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So what does he say to the Colossians? He says, Jesus is reconciler of all things in Colossians 1.20. Now he moves on and he says, before and after. I just wanted to draw out what he's really saying here. Before you were reconciled to Jesus, you were enemies of God. You were dead. You were alienated. Those are the words he used. Alienated and enemies. Now think about this. <laughs> this is really serious. Um, completely separate. Um, Roman says, by nature you're objects of wrath. This is a serious business because we're not talking about like my wife that I'm alienated from, that I'm separate from, that we're enemies for a short time. This is God, Jesus, the creator of the universe. Remember what has just been said. He says, Jesus is above all. He is head of all creation. By him all things were created through him. 
and all things hold together in him, even those little dust motes flying in the air, all that is held up by Jesus, all that is going on is through Jesus. And then he says, you were alienated. You were separate. You were enemies of God. There's a, a popular evangelism method. There's a couple of different ones. Maybe some of you have heard of like the Romans road. You take people through verses in Romans and explain sin and all this stuff. Well, there's a, a popular way uh, of sharing it now called two ways because uh, more and more people are really not really familiar with the idea of sin and things like that. And so in a lot of ways it can be difficult to understand because we don't have Bible understanding as a culture very much anymore. So two ways basically says you are an enemy of God because you chose your way and you choose God's way now. It's much more detailed than that, but um, basically that's what it comes down here. Before you were alienated and you were enemies, you were dead, you chose your own way, but you are reconciled to Christ's body through his death. So now you are holy, blameless, and irreproachable. Um, some, some translations will have different, uh, different things. Uh, like this NIV says, present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So no one can accuse you. That is an amazing thought. Is that to say, okay, you're never going to do anything wrong. Obviously, we know that's not true. We know even the suffering we put ourselves through with the choices we make sometimes. But ultimately, in the end, when you stand before God, Satan cannot accuse you. No one else can accuse you. You can say, you know, I understand. I did those things. You are right. I am totally unworthy to enter into heaven. But that is not the reason I'm entering. It is because of Jesus alone. Because I cling to him and his righteousness and his works. So this is kind of an introduction to what he's saying. Saying this is what you were. This is what you are now. Now um, he says, <clears throat> excuse me. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held up in the gospel. This gospel has been proclaimed to every creature. So what he says, he says, being grounded and steadfast, some translations say, not moved from the hope of the gospel. There's three main ways that this can occur, I think. Number one is error or false doctrine. Um, As the youth know, um, when we're going through the New Testament survey, just talking about the New Testament, in youth Sunday school, one of the big things that kept coming up again and again and again as we were reading through the New Testament is there's so much information and so much in these books about false teaching. Beware of false teaching. There's so many different kinds. And especially during this time, there's lots of different kinds that maybe we don't even see today. Um, that's warned against in Second Peter 3.17. Also, um, temptations to sin, Second Peter 2.20-22. Sin can drag us away from the hope of the gospel. We can be enticed and dragged away. And trials and hardships in life, we went through this for so long that I don't think we need to talk super in-depth about it now. Those are probably the three main things that, that the Bible shows us. Beware of these things. Watch out for false teaching. Watch out for sin. And beware of hardships. Be ready for them. That was the whole goal of what we talked about in our last series was being ready. So when it happens, you don't say, God, what's going on? But, God, I understand what you are doing. And please draw me close to you. Um, so that brings us to Colossians 1.24. If you read different translations, may say it a little differently. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. 
for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, we're going to do this a little maybe differently than you're used to. I want to summarize the paragraph here. Um, there's kind of a paragraph going on from 24 through 29. And it's going to be a little different because I want to work backwards through it, starting at 29. I think it will give us a little clearer picture so we can say, you know, this, there's this filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And there's been you know, a lot of discussion about what this means. But I think it helps it be a lot more clear as we take the, the paragraph as a whole. So in verse 29, Paul says there's a purpose that he labors for. Okay? Verse 29, <laughs> starting at the end, says there's a purpose for which I labor. It's kind of the ending of his argument. 28, it describes the purpose which Paul labors for. He wants to present everyone complete or perfect in Christ, he says. And by proclaiming, he does this by proclaiming Christ, admonishing, encouraging everyone, and teaching everyone. In verses 26 and 27, it, it's really describing what Paul is teaching. So there's a purpose for what he does, and that is to teach everyone. Verse 26, 27, this is what he teaches. It's called a mystery. And we'll probably come back to this word a little more in just a second. It's not like a, a mystery that you think of. This is one of those words, remember... We talked about thinking about how does the Bible define words um, and what is joy and suffering. All these things mean in light of the Bible. Mystery is not like a mystery novel like, oh, how is it going to end? Who is the killer? Um, It's not that kind of mystery. In fact, he's saying, actually, biblical mysteries are known. It's not something that is unknown. But what he means by this, he says, basically, that the church is a mystery. What that means is that You're in the Old Testament. There's lots of prophecies. There's even a prophecy about the Messiah. But what were the Jews expecting? Um, And when we look at Palm Sunday, we kind of see what they were expecting. They thought Jesus came, and he was going to get rid of the Romans. He was going to be king, and Israel was going to be great again, just like it was under David and Solomon. And so they, they saw this Messiah coming as like a political king. Well, here's the mystery. Jesus came, and he died. And then what happened? The church happened. We are that mystery. It was not apparent. Uh, if you, you can see some clues that um, the Messiah would be a light to the Gentiles and things in the Old Testament. But it wasn't really known until Jesus died. And then this whole thing called the church age, where we are living now, happened. And so it was a mystery to those people. It was something that no one saw coming. There's a couple times that this mystery is used in the New Testament. So I just wanted to clear that up a little it was not really fully revealed in the, past, in the past, but it is now. It says, The mystery is being revealed, and Paul is proclaiming Christ and teaching everywhere, everyone everywhere that the indwelling of the Messiah and the hope of glory, the glory of God, belong to all who trust in Christ and really hope in the glory of God. So, Paul has a purpose for which he does things. He, he accomplishes this purpose by admonishing people, teaching them. It's a mystery. This is what he's teaching about the church age, what it means, what redemption is. 25, he says the proclamation of Christ is fulfilling the stewardship that God has given Paul. He says, moving backwards again, he says, I'm doing this, I'm proclaiming this mystery because I am fulfilling what God has given me to do. This is my mission. I proclaim this mystery. I proclaim this mystery. And this is my goal, and I'm doing it to admonish people, to teach them, because it is my purpose that everyone would be complete in Christ. So now, we get back to verse 24. 
<laughs> it might be a little unclear still. It says, the ministry of extending the ministry of Christ and the hope of glory to the nation and admonishing and teaching them involves suffering. So I, it starts maybe a little unclear and becomes more and more clear as you go. So what he's saying here, and we're going to get a little closer to make this make a little more sense. In the context of this paragraph, what he's saying is that his teaching his purpose for which he lives, the telling of this mystery of redemption and the the suffering and the death of the Son of God for salvation involves suffering. Okay? So, taking it as a whole, take everything that comes after, it gives us a a broad picture of what that means. Now we're going to get a little closer, help help us understand a little more. Why is this so important? Um, Just like before maybe it wasn't as clear in verse 20 where it says he is reconciler to all things of all things you know some people would say oh that means everything is reconciled everyone is safe this is another one where he, uh, he says filling up what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions so the first question as a good preacher student of the Bible is what in the world is he talking about did Jesus' death not accomplish everything he intended it to how do I fill up what Jesus did more than him. He's God. His suffering wasn't good enough. What, what's the deal? Um, and really, as, a, as someone who teaches and thinks about these things, I'm really indebted, um, as you probably know, to a lot of commentaries and things. But especially for this sermon, I'm really indebted to Dr. John Piper. He had an excellent sermon on this. And as we go through this, he was very clear, and, and a lot of things helped me uh, that he wrote and said in his message really helped me to understand this better and especially his illustrations I'm using a lot of them I just wanted to let you know so if you want um, to look into that he's had got a really great sermon on this as well um, so what what we're saying the context here is that the context that we just looked at um, suggests that Paul's sufferings fill up Christ uh, Paul's sufferings fill up Christ not by adding anything to their worth but by extending them to the people they were meant to bless Okay, so when he suffers, it's not adding anything to what Jesus did. It spreads it. Um, and to help us understand this a little more, I want to go actually to Philippians 2, 29 through 30. This will help us, uh, I think, understand this a little bit more. There's similar words. Uh, Epaphroditus, um, when, what's going on here is that there's a guy named Epaphroditus at the church of Philippi in Philippians. And Paul's talking about him. The church gathered support for Paul. Could be money, could be books. We don't really know. Um, but Paul gets support from the Philippians, and he's very happy about it. He writes about it in the letter. And what happens is they want to send them to Paul in Rome, these supplies, support. And so they send Epaphroditus. In his travels to, to take this stuff to Paul in Rome, he almost dies. Um, and so Paul commends him. Uh, it even says in verse 27 that Epaphroditus um, was sick to the point of death but God spared him so Paul writes about him and in 29 um, hold on let me oh in 29 he says receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me now again these are similar words but just take out the bold there and the same questions come out. What does that mean that they, you know, they're giving Paul support, so what, what, how does Epaphroditus make complete what is deficient? Is there something deficient in their gift? Well, the words are really similar here. Um, so it says, risking his life to complete 
fill up what is deficient or lacking. So the words are really similar that he's saying here. So how do we understand this? What was Epaphroditus doing that was lacking in their gift? He was bringing it to Paul. They had this gift, they had gathered it, but what was lacking is that Paul did not yet have it. Understand? So his filling up what was lacking was the actual act of bringing it to Paul. Um, there's a good commentary that talks about it. The gift Paul to Paul was the, a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking and what would have been grateful to Paul and the church alike was the church's presentation of this offering in person. This was impossible, and Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry. So, similar words. What he was doing in filling up what was lacking was taking the gift. So how does that apply to what we're talking about now? How do we, how does Paul fill up Christ's affliction? His suffering is not adding to Christ. There's not something in him that you know, accomplishes redemption. Lost just had its season finale. I don't know how many of you watch it. But um, basically, there's this guy, Jack, and at the end, they did everything they could do to scream, Jack is the Christ figure. He dies for these people. He's got a wound in his side. There's all this stuff going on. Um, and they really made it their goal to do that. And in this case, is not that, like in Lost, that it was filling up some kind of Jack earns redemption for all these people. But when you suffer, this is where it comes big connection to what we talked about before. When you suffer, you are showing the purpose of Christ's sufferings to the world. It says, just like I was rejected, you will be rejected. Just like um, people hated me, they will hate you. When you suffer, you take Christ's suffering to the world. What is lacking is that Jesus died, he achieved redemption, redemption but it is not yet told to the whole world. So when we suffer, we are actually witnessing to Jesus' death. We are showing the world what he did. Now, I have a a lot of examples of this um, that I hope will help you understand this a little more. Um, There's this guy in the early church named Tertullian who wrote a very famous work called Apology. Basically, during that time, um, people were being persecuted just for being Christians. It was Roman law, and they had to sacrifice to the gods, declare Caesar as God, or they would be um, whipped or, in a lot of cases, killed. And so he writes to Caesar, and he says a lot of different things. A very famous quote that comes up a lot. He says, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he means by that is basically the harder you push and the more you do, the greater the gospel will spread. And this has been extremely true um, in the past in China especially. You know, China as a, a nation was very hard to bring the gospel to, very low numbers of Christians for a long time until um, Mao Zedong took over, there was a cultural revolution, and no one heard anything for a long time uh, about what was going on. And then China opened up again, and when it opened up again, they discovered like millions more Christians, a number so great that they figured out the difference between when they heard before and after was that 10,000 people a day were coming to Jesus because of suffering, um, because it was not easy. And so I see this as a great example of that quote, a great example of this truth and filling up what is lacking. Christians were suffering, and people saw that, and they understood. They understood the purpose of Jesus' death because 
They were filling up what was lacking. They were bringing the message. There's a, a Romanian pastor named Joseph Song. He went through a lot of suffering also in, uh, commun- under communism in Romania. And he says that Christ's death was for propitiation. Our suffering is for propagation. Now those are big words, but what he's saying is that Christ's death was to take the wrath of God. Our suffering is to tell of Christ's death. That is the purpose. And that's what verse 24 means. Also, <clears throat> I told you I have tons of examples of this. There's a famous Chinese preacher, Watchman Nee. Anyone heard of him? Yeah, there's a, there's a really famous sermon. Usually if you read about Watchman Nee, you'll hear about this sometime. Um, that he was being watched by the government, and he, he knew that they were probably going to arrest him if he said anything, <laughs> basically, um, because they were looking for every reason to arrest him. So what he did, very famous sermon, he takes a glass up with him on the stage, doesn't say a word, and he throws it on the ground as hard as he can, and it shatters. And he looks at it, and he stomps on the pieces. And he keeps stomping and stomping and stomping. And they get smaller and smaller and smaller. There's just these little pieces all over the place. And, of course, the, the government officials are like, what is wrong with this guy? It's crazy. But it's said that all the people in the church knew exactly what he was talking about. That, basically, he was, in a wordless sermon, saying what Tertullian did. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. No matter how hard you try and stomp the church out, all you will do is spread it further. That even when you try and destroy it, you are just scattering it. This happened in the book of Acts, too. Um, This is exactly what happened in the book of Acts. All the disciples are in Jerusalem, and they come under suffering, and what happens? They spread out to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, just like it says in the beginning of Acts. This is what's going on here. That is the filling up of Christ's afflictions. They go to the nations. They tell them Christ's suffering. And in most cases, they suffer as well. Many, many of the disciples were killed. Um, Peter was crucified upside down. People were thrown off of the temple. Um, it said that Thomas was boiled in oil in India. Um, there's lots of different... Most of them died in lots of really terrible ways. They were filling up Christ's afflictions. Oswald Chambers, he wrote a famous devotional, uh, Utmost for His Highest. Um, maybe a lot, a lot of you may have heard it, maybe not. He tells the story of an indigenous missionary in India. And the guy, his hardships are, are really a lot. And he just walks and walks and walks. And he, he proclaims the gospel. And he walks so much, his feet are covered with blisters. Because um, he doesn't have any shoes. And he just keeps walking. So he enters a village... Um, and he tries to speak the gospel, and he's completely rejected. And so he goes out, he's tired, he feels a little dejected, and he goes and lays under a tree. When he wakes up, all the people of the village are around him. What happened is that when he fell asleep, someone went to go check out, check him out, see what he was about, and they saw his feet. They saw, they were covered with blisters, and they said, this must be a holy man. We should listen to what he says. And so they listened. And they listen to his message because of his suffering. Uh, another example, uh, told by Michael Card, a musician. There is this guy at the Itinerant Evangelist Conference in Amsterdam. Um, Billy Graham Association uh, had this conference in Amsterdam for evangelists that just travel around. And it's about a Maasai warrior named Joseph um, from Africa. And one day he's walking along down the road. It's hot. And someone comes and tells him the truth of Jesus. And he gets saved. 
very similar to the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. Basically, someone explains to him, and on the side of the road right there, he gets saved. So he decides he's going to go and tell other people. He goes, starts going door to door about Jesus and how he understood the cross and Jesus' suffering. And so he goes into this village, and they reject him really bad. In fact, the wet men um, kind of hold him down, push him down, incapacitate him, and the women take strips of barbed wire and start whipping him with it. So he, they drag him out, and he kind of lays in this pool for a couple days um, in and out of consciousness he's healed a little bit and so he, he wakes up and he goes back to tell them again because he says maybe I forgot something maybe I didn't explain it correctly because this changed my life so much and so he goes back and the same thing happens okay he gets thrown out again and he goes back a third time and the same thing happens but the third time when he wakes up all the women of the village are crying because they realize why would anyone do this? Why would anyone suffer this much? What he has to say must be so important. And the entire village eventually comes to Christ through his ministry, through what he did. Why? He's filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. His suffering did not offer salvation to those people. He's told of Jesus' salvation. That is what this verse is talking about. Another great story. Um, so, so many to help us understand this verse. Um, one of my favorite books is called Bruchko. Um, it's about this, this young boy. He's a teenager from Minnesota. And when he's 19, he really, uh, throughout, after he becomes saved, he really feels a strong call to go to South America. But he's really sick. He doesn't have a lot of training. And so mission boards reject him. So he says, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. I don't have any money. I don't have anything. And he hears about this basically Stone Age tribe called the Modelones. And they're known for killing oil company employees. It's out in the, the jungle of Venezuela and Colombia. The only reason anyone goes out there is for oil. And basically every time anyone meets these Indians, um, they're killed because they're defending their land. So what does he do, of course? <laughs> he goes out into the jungle and just is like, hey, I'm going to meet you guys. And he, uh, his first attempt, he is brought there by another group of Indians and he's shot with arrows. He almost dies, and he crawls out, eventually makes his way back to civilization. And they tell him, you know, you can't go back. But he does it anyway. And he goes back, and eventually he's accepted into the tribe, this you know, young 19-year-old from Minnesota, and he figures out their language, and he lives with them, and he brings in the message of Jesus. Why? Because he was willing to suffer. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul, you want a guy who suffered. It's Paul. You know, Corinthians, he talks about all the things that happened to him. Whipped, shipwrecked, stoned, all these things. Why would he do that? To bring the message of Jesus. He says, so I rejoice in my sufferings, so I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I bring the message of Jesus, the message of his suffering to the nations. And because of that, I rejoice. Why? Now we get to the rest of that paragraph. Because I am only fulfilling the job that God has given me. And that job is to teach people of the mystery of Christ's affliction. To teach them of the mystery of the church. How they can turn to God. How Gentiles and everyone can come to know God because of his death. And what is my goal? To present everyone full in Christ. Complete in Christ. Um... I hope this is a lot more clear. And there's just so many examples of this. 
Uh, also, I have one more story from Haiti. This is not rec- necessarily recent, but um, there's this guy, there's a Thanksgiving festival, and each Christian is asked to bring a love offering in Haiti. And um, there's this guy named Edmund. He gives $13. And really, people compare this to the, the widow in the Gospels, where she gives her little two coins. And Jesus says she gave so much more because she gave everything she had. So he gives $13, which is the equivalent of someone randomly probably giving about $6,000, just randomly. It's a lot of month, a couple months pay for him. And so they try and seek him out and do him like, why did you do this? Because he, he gave this money, but he didn't show up at the Thanksgiving festival. So they asked him, why didn't you come? I mean, you gave this huge gift. Why didn't you come? He said, because I had no shirt to wear. Because I gave all my money. I couldn't afford a shirt. I didn't have one. And I didn't feel like I could come. Um, what we're seeing in all these stories is that God prepares us to suffer. And he uses that suffering. As I said, like, I feel like we were talking about this a lot. It's because it's in the Bible so much. It just comes out of it. And, and there's so much. The question here, though, for us, as we enter our application is um, Christ's willingness he, he, we have personal presentation of his sufferings we say with our suffering we are suffering because Christ suffered we bring that message um, when we choose fleeting pleasures whatever that may be or comfort you know the, the house in the suburbs the 2.5 kids and a dog a minivan whatever um, and we pursue that relentlessly we choose against joy. And I, that sounds harsh, but we are all chasing something. No matter what we do, we are chasing something. And the question is, what are we chasing? Is wealth bad? No. Is having you know, a nice TV bad? Is whatever bad? A nice car? No. It's not in, in and of itself bad. But the question is, what are you chasing? What am I chasing? Is it ambition? You know, do you want to be known for preachers? You know, that's really... Usually people don't enter the pastor for money. Um, but a lot of people maybe in their minds are like, maybe I can become a famous preacher. Is it ambition? Is it success? Is it awards? Is it whatever? What is it that you are chasing? What is it that you are following? Because when you choose those things over Jesus over that suffering of taking his message to the world you choose against joy because and this is where it gets hard right this is where we we come to church and we talk all about joy and we talk about suffering and we talk about God and how we want to serve him but what are our choices saying about who we are what are our choices saying about what we value what are we chasing Um, an important question for us all this week this question tore me apart what am I chasing what do I want out of life am I choosing joy if we really say you know as the uh, famous catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever are we really living that are we choosing joy are we choosing money are we choosing children you know, sometimes that can be our little idol with our children. It can be so many things. What are we chasing? What are we choosing? 
Um, so as we move on this last couple of verses, Paul's goal, this is his goal, this is his choice. He says, my goal is to present everyone perfect or complete in Christ. This doesn't mean, again, this word perfect isn't like no one ever makes mistakes. Complete is a much better translation. I think Thompson's had that in it. Um, I want to present everyone complete in Christ. I want to teach them. I want them to know. I want to show them suffering so that they can know what Jesus did. I want to teach them about the mystery. I want them to hold fast to the hope of the gospel. I want them to know it deeply so that they are known for their faith and love. I want them to know that Jesus is above all, that his suffering accomplished all. That is my goal in life, is to do that. As you said, Paul suffered really, really a lot. So, um, some questions. Do we imitate Paul in this regard, in Jesus? Uh, Oh, some other questions first. Are we established and firm in our faith? Knowledge of the gospel produces fruit. That was our first lesson from this series. Knowledge of the gospel produces fruit. When you truly know, and it hits your heart, what the gospel means, what the sufferings of Jesus mean, what the above allness of Jesus means, it will produce fruit in your life. And it's really hard to say because I look at my life sometimes and I don't see the fruit. So what is that? I should be asking myself some really hard questions. And that's, again, why this sermon tore me apart. If I'm not seeing the fruit, I need to ask myself, am I truly understanding this? Is it truly in my heart if it's not affecting my life? Are our lives spreading the message of Jesus? You know, I use a lot of examples of, like, third world countries and missionaries and stuff. But, you know, when Tertullian wrote his famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, it wasn't like just these special people it was everyone that was going through that and we live comfortable lives we do there's no denying it Um, and again what are we chasing should we chase suffering should we chase martyrdom no I don't think we should try to kill ourselves for Jesus but I do think that when we proclaim the message of Jesus when we bring that to people when that is our consuming purpose and passion, it will happen. Remember our last message in the suffering series, the life of a Christian, the past, present, and future, it is a life of hurting hope. Just living in this world, we're going to suffer. And especially being followers of Jesus, he said it himself, they hated me, they will hate you. So let's let's bring this to the world. Um, You can see we have a room redesigned to help remind us of this. Go and make disciples of all nations. And there are people all around the world waiting for Jesus. Um, I shared this story with the teens last week in Sunday school. Hudson Taylor, famous, famous missionary to China, he tells this story. Every time I read it, it breaks my heart because he's talking to this guy. He came to the evangelistic meetings and he comes to Jesus and he says, I have been a seeker of truth my whole life and my father sought truth his whole life and his father before him wanted wisdom and this is the truth how long have you known this before you told and he said well we've known it hundreds of years you know he said I was ashamed to tell him how long we have known this without ever bringing it to the people of China and it broke his heart it breaks my heart too and I just want to 
Say it again. When we choose things other than the gospel, we choose against joy. If we are created in the image of God, we are created to be more like Him and to make others more like Him so that we can all bring glory to God. And that is when we find our purpose, our fulfillment, our hope, our joy, all those things. Let's choose joy. Let us choose joy. Are we imitators of Jesus and Paul? Paul says um, he wants, his, his main goal is to present everyone complete in Christ. All his brothers, he's willing to suffer. He has joy in suffering for that end. Um, are we willing, do we, first of all, do we consider our, our brothers and sisters being complete in Christ a source of pride? Are we worried about ourselves or others? Um, are we really concerned about those around us, making them better in Jesus, understanding better? Um, just some questions for consideration. Are we willing, if that is true, to expend blood, sweat, and tears, the work, the hard work to present people, excuse me, perfect in Christ? Or is it, you know, maybe if I have time, I'll do it. Can we truthfully say yes to those questions if we don't take time to assemble together, to come together, if we don't take time to encourage people who are going through a hard time or weaken the faith, and if we aren't willing to be patient and forgive? These are some hard questions for me, very hard questions. Because I look at them and I, I find that many times the answer is no. Now, the question is from there, what am I going to do? Am I going to be depressed that I'm not doing it? Or am I going to bear the fruit of the gospel? Am I going to choose joy and do that? Or am I going to be dragged away again by choosing something else? Hard questions. Are we willing to give the effort and emotion to reach this end? So, as we think about these things, again, um, there are two things that are difficult about this passage. And number one, at, at first glance, the reading. What does it mean to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? That can be difficult. But far, far, far more difficult is actually doing it. You know, sometimes we can spend, expend a lot of energy, especially me as a teacher, figuring out what does this mean? And I spend, expend all this energy trying to figure out what does it mean? How can I explain it to you all so that you'll understand but what, again, what hit me this week, what tore me apart, was realizing that it is much, much harder to do this, to choose this, because I choose so many other things. And let's choose joy. This is our mission. We hold this treasure in jars of clay, that passage from Second Corinthians 4, so that they know, the world will know, the power comes from God, not from us. We are broken people, and we are going to choose other things. But God's power dwells within us. When we know the truth of the gospel, when we invest in it, when we are willing to follow God with reckless abandon, just running after him, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We proclaim him to the world. And, you know, we talked about it so much, but what Paul said really just rocks my brain. I consider it joy. I rejoice in my sufferings because this is what's happening. I want to be there. I do so bad. So let's pray to that end. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you so much for who you are. You are above all. And God, our hearts are corrupt. 
and we, we beg you to clean them. We want to be cleansed. Thank you for your salvation that we are presented complete and perfect before God because of what you have done. But change us. Don't let our hearts be hard. Don't let comfort be a blanket that we wrap around us to protect us from the truth of what we need to do and what we need to be. Let us choose you. Let us choose joy. And we can only do that with your strength, Lord Jesus. Transform our hearts. Let us be changed. So easy to, to leave here today and just do the same thing, to go back and be the same person. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would change us. That in our very deepest part of our hearts, that you would change who we are. That we would be your children and spread your word. We want to fill up what is lacking. That the world does not know of you yet. We just ask for the strength to make disciples of all nations. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in persecuted nations again that don't have the freedom to meet together, that it costs them, that they, they suffer for meeting together, for proclaiming your name. Let us learn from them. They are the ones that know more than we do. They know you and they know joy because they know what it truly costs to follow you. We want to be like that, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would bring them comfort and strength and we ask that you would shake us out of our dreams, that you would show us what your truth is and transform our minds and hearts to choose you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.